Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Addict Headquarters. We have a wonderful show for you today, folks, because author, actor, film critic Phil Hall is here to talk about the greatest bad movies of all time, his new book scheduled for release on August 12th. Phil selected 100 motion pictures to include in this book, and he's written insightful, entertaining descriptions of why each motion picture made the cut. Because of his impeccable research on this project, as well as his vast knowledge of the cinema, the greatest bad movies of all time is a treasure for movie lovers everywhere, so we're very lucky to have Phil with us again. He's got such an impressive background, I hope he's listening now to me. Just listen to this. He's also the author of several other books, such as The Encyclopedia of Underground Movies, Independent Film Distribution, and The History of Independent Cinema. His movie acting experience includes roles in London Betty, Bikini Bloodbath Car Wash, Abduction, My Mouth Lies Screaming, The Land of College Prophets, and Uncorked, my favorite short movie, that he wrote and stars in. And outside of acting and writing film-related books, Phil serves as a contributing editor for Film Threat, has been a member of the governing committee of the Online Film Critics Society, and recently created the Business Superstar website. I think today's show marks the third or fourth time he's been our guest, and it's my great pleasure to bring him on now. Welcome back to Movie Attic Headquarters, Phil. Well, thank you for having me back, Betty Jo. We're always happy when you can agree to be our guest. And I have to tell you, I really love your new book. You picked such a great topic. I want you to know there's quite a discussion going on at my Facebook page about the great bad movies. And if you go over there, Phil, you'll recognize some of your fans and friends. So be sure to check it check it out. And I understand you have three interviews about your book scheduled just today. Yes. This must be a busy time for you. Oh, dear, yes. This is uh, the second of the three interviews that I'm doing today. I also had an interview that was published on the uh, Canadian Fern TV uh, website this morning, so it's been quite hectic. Well, you d- you definitely deserve all this attention, Phil. And, and of course, our co-host today, Mad Movie Man A.J. Hockery, also deserves attention. He's been waiting patiently in the green room, so let's bring him on now. Hi, A.J. Thanks for agreeing to co-host with me today. No problem, Betty Jo. Although I'm wondering why you decided to pick me to co-host a, movie, a show about bad movies. Like, I'm notorious for liking everything I see. I've never seen a bad movie in my life. <laughs> I think you I think you jest, sir. 
I definitely do. I, I don't I mean, know. It's hard. It's hard to find the movies that you that you do like. But the interesting thing about that is, you always have uh, such uh, fun things to say about a movie, whether you like it or whether whether you hated it. And so I knew that you'd enjoy this this topic. But I also know how busy you are with your Cineslice blog and and all your Facebook postings. Uh, people, that, if you haven't gone over to Facebook. And checked out A.J. Hockery's uh, Facebook postings. You're really missing out. And then there's your uh, Spamalot project. Uh, you're playing when when Spamalot is uh, is on in your area. You're playing some, uh, multiple roles in that. I've I've forgotten. Uh, fill me in again on on the various roles that you're playing in Spamalot. Yep, uh, we're going to be putting on a Spamalot at the Northern Stars Theater in uh, Rice Lake, Wisconsin, uh, mid-next month. And uh, in in true Python tradition, you know, I'm playing multiple roles. I'm one of the monks who uh, chants Latin and smacks their head with the books. I'm a uh, pit boss in Camelot, which is depicted as like this big, gaudy Vegas, Vegas place. I'm also uh, the voice of God, which, you know, no pressure on that one. I'm the uh, then the French taunter who hurled insults at King Arthur and his men, so that's really good. And I'm also the father in the swamp castle. And uh, not to spoil anything, but I do close out the show by getting hit on the head with a shovel. So no pressure there either. Like I'm I'm the last comic beat. Well, I remember now. You've promised me before that um, since I I can't see the show, you'll definitely send me uh, photos, and I do want to hear the see the one with you being hit on the head with the shovel. Can you manage that? Well, we'll, we'll try. We'll see what the photographer can do. See if she can put those up there. Well, thank you, and I know you'll do a wonderful a wonderful job. And uh, I I really wish that I could see that uh, production. But this show must go on. And I wanted to mention that I I think that Nikki Starr is here. I'm having a little technical problems, but I think she is here. And um, I I don't have access to the chat, but um, I do believe that it is uh, open for uh, listeners who want to sign sign up. So, dear listeners, oh, there she is. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry. I, I, it well, took me about eight minutes to get in, so if people are listening, I want them to just keep trying, to just keep trying. But it is open now, so. Well, good. I'm so glad to hear that, and I'm so I'm very very happy that uh, that you are here, and uh, we really appreciate uh, our chatters, the people who sign up for chat, as well as all our other listeners. But but now that everyone's here and raring to go, let's get on with the show. AJ, I know you have some questions for Phil. So I'm promising you that I'm going to do my best not to interrupt as you're interacting with with (laughs) Phil. I'm crossing my fingers and my toes to make sure that I don't break that promise. And uh, so go ahead now. Ask away. All right, absolutely. Uh, Phil, you've uh, written a book about, you know, bad movies. And and the market out there, the the market kind of seems evenly split between books written about, like, the best movies of all time and, like, like the biggest turkeys and flops ever made. And no matter where you go, you kind of run into the usual suspects. Like, in, in the best movie book, you know, you read about, you know, Citizen Kane and Casablanca. And, like, you can't pick up a bad movie book without seeing something about, like, Manos or Plan 9 or something like that. So uh, what made you uh, pick sides? Uh, why did you decide to write the, 
go for the bad movie route. Well, the inspiration for the book began about three years ago. I was acting in a movie called Rudyard Kipling's Mark of the Beast, and during downtime in production, uh, members of the cast and crew were gathered around a lunch table, and they were talking about a film called The Room, and they said, had you ever seen the film? I said, no, and they said, you have to see this. There's a guy named Tommy Wiseau who made this. It's, it's the worst thing ever made. Somebody pulled out a laptop, and they had clips of the movie on the computer, and I was watching it, and people around the table were, were quoting from the movie, and they were talking in such a happy, animated manner. And it dawned on me that, you know, when you, there is a discussion of films. When you're talking about the great films, uh, the Citizen Kane, the Casablanca, uh, it's always very polite. It's, it's invigorating, but in a cerebral way. When, but when you speak about the great bad movies, people become energetic. They become animated. Every film that's spoken about is always the very worst thing ever made. People go to great lengths to point out where the film failed miserably. And <laughs> it dawned on me that uh, people real people love good movies, but they secretly love the great bad movies. And I have to differentiate between a regular bad movie and a great bad movie. A, a regular bad movie is a mediocrity that uh, you forget about uh, five minutes after the closing credits. A great bad movie is a film that you can never forget about, no matter how much you try. You, you're sitting watching this with your eyes wide open, your jaw down on your chest, and you're in shock that adults somehow came together, spent all this money, and created such an atrocity. And at no point during the production process did anybody seem to stop and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't think this is going to work. So that was the inspiration behind this particular book. <laughs> Well, you kind of answered uh, the next question I had, uh, which would have been, uh, what makes a bad movie great? And I was actually uh, talking with my uh, girlfriend yesterday about this, because I was telling her I was doing the show, and she's like, oh, bad movies, like, grown-ups? And I had to think, like, no, grown-ups, the Adam Sandler one, like, that's a one-and-done. Like, it's a really awful movie, but you never have to worry about it as long as you live. It just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But on the other hand, like, I still... Uh, vividly remember uh, sitting in the theater last fall watching The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure, and that was just so psychedelically, cosmically bad that I am still, I still start laughing every time I try and start describing it. It's like, no, no, really, Gary always is a cowboy bubble truck driver. No, you gotta see this. And it's just so phenomenally weird that you can't shake it out of your head like that. Uh, but like, like you said, people are uh, drawn to bad movies more so than kind of good ones in a lot of cases. Uh, why do you think that is? Like, what gives them that enthusiasm that they have for uh, putting themselves through stuff that, like, you know, quote unquote, normal people would just never even bother to watch? Well, you see, movie watching is a, I would say, it's an exercise in uh, observing perfection because we think of movie people as being gorgeous. We think of uh, the movie adventures as being exciting. We, we live our lives vicariously through what we see on the screen. But when something goes wrong on the screen, we're sort of jolted into realizing, hey, wait a minute, uh, this magic isn't working. It's sort of like watching a magician uh, fail to pull a rabbit out of a hat or watch all the tricks uh, misfire while he's on the stage. And I think we sort of get a thrill over seeing the big stars and, and seeing the major directors goof up in, in such a monumental way. And there are some filmmakers like Orson Welles or George Cooker who, when they make great films, they make peerless movies. But when they make a bad movie, 
it's a great bad movie. It, it's this isn't just wrong. It's wrong with capital W, capital R, capital O N G. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Like you know, in recent years, you know, M Night Shyamalan has become like one of the favorite like directorial punching bags of like various uh, like both both critics and audiences. It isn't just that. Oh, the the direct the film snob people who like hailed him when he did you know the sixth sense and unbreakable like now they're finally turning on him but like no that's that's the audience too like they're slowly just kind of going away from uh his movies there but to go uh kind of more specifically here uh the the horror genre in particular that kind of seems like very uh a very easy target for a lot of critics because it it as much as like I've seen horror movies in my life, and as much of the ones that I've hated, there have been a one a lot of them that I've enjoyed, and I've really had to defend the ones that I've enjoyed, and it's kind of hard to do that when there's just so much, you know, like death and destruction in there, and kind of like all these like lurid, plotless things. But uh, for horror films, which do you think transcend, you know, just being a really crummy horror movie, and uh, which ones? Like achieve that level of greatness that you're talking about. Well, I think uh, head and shoulders above them all are the hands, of course, Manos, the hands of fate. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the film is, is such a totally incoherent and incompetent mess, but in such a fascinating way that you watch the film, you, you know that they were trying to do something, and it just it just didn't happen. It just came out something so, so strange. You, you have Torgo with his... Uh, swollen knees schlepping about you you have cutaways to the couple kissing in the car which have nothing to do with the movie that, that, that ridiculous opening sequence where they're just driving on and on and on because they couldn't afford to put the titles over the uh that that particular footage and it's funny though because when the film came out uh absolutely nobody uh paid any mind to it, it was barely seen it played in texas um and in some drive-ins in new mexico and that was it and of course, it was uh, the television show that celebrated uh, the great bad movies, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which located this uh, film. They, uh, apparently, it's in the book that uh, Mike Nelson from MST3K uh, had gotten a box of uh, videos of public domain films, and nobody had ever heard of Manos, and they put uh, this film in to watch it, and everyone was completely stunned by what they see. <laughs> and even even today, if you watch the film multiple times, you're still stunned. And there's a type of film that you never get tired of watching, because you had mentioned Adam Sandler a few minutes ago. Uh, with his type of film, you watch this once, you feel like you don't want to see it again. You don't need to see it again. It's uh, it's stained your memory, and you just as soon wipe it out. But Manus, you could, it's it's intoxicating. It's like opening a new bottle of champagne with each screening. Yeah, and, and Manos in particular, that's one of those movies where, you know, like what's on the screen is just so incompetently put together. You are just kind of fascinated by it. But, like, the backstory behind it is equally, you know, intriguing because you got that whole, like, the director was a fertilizer salesman who made a bet with uh, Sterling Siliphant, the famous, you know, screenwriter, who, who's been like, yeah, I can make a movie on the cheap, and it'll be a success. And so that whole movie came about, like, as a result of a bet. So you've got that whole story there behind that. Well, every great bad movie has a great story behind it, which is interesting. And that one in particular is, uh, what do you do when you give a fertilizer salesman $25,000 to make a movie? And this is the answer. <laughs> 
And and uh, so well, moving on from that, you know, you got the horror movies, but then you've got the the, the sci-fi and fantasy genre, because then you kind of really start to get into the realm of uh, rip-offs. Like when Star Wars came out, there was a thousand like really cheap, on the cheap knockoffs, and you know when ET came out, there was a lot of those like Mac and Me or and Nuki and just all these kind of borderline unwatchable movies. But for the sci-fi genre, what would you rank as like the greatest bad one of the bunch? Well, there are several. Uh, I think it might be a tie between something called Star Crash, which was sort of an Italian ripoff of Star Wars with uh, David Hasselhoff and Christopher Plummer, which are two names you very rarely see together. <laughs> and there's also Abbott and Costello go to Mars, which is fascinating because they, they don't go to Mars in the movie. They actually go to Venus. And I'm, yeah. I still can't get under, understand how it is that the people at Universal International gave the green light for that title and didn't realize this is the wrong title. And also the fact, too, why would Abbott and Costello want to go into outer space? It's, it just, it's an incomprehensible idea. It's not, Abbott and Costello are just, uh, just smart-talking uh, urban comics, and, and to put them into a very silly sci-fi film with uh, the contestants from the Miss Universe contest, it's, it's not science fiction. It's, it's, I don't know what it is. It certainly wasn't comedy because it was just an aggressively unfunny movie. I, I don't know. I suppose when you hang out with, like, Dracula and Wolfman, you know, there's nowhere to go but up. You've got to top yourself. Well, they went up. I, that's for sure. But I don't. I don't know if they topped themselves. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just realized I have missed out on a lot of great bad movies. Now I have to put on my list: Manos, The Hands of Fate, uh, Abbott and Costello, Go to Go Mars, to Mars. <laughs> right. yes. and, and what was the other? Uh, Star Crash. Crash. And Star I did Crash. put those on my list while I was while I was reading reading your book too. And oh, um, I, well, I, I just hope that after you see them, that AJ and I are going to be allowed back on your show again. So yeah. <laughs> no, we, well, yes, you don't, don't blame are. me. It's Phil's book. You, you, blame him. You always are are allowed back on the show. We we love to have you back on the show. Well, well, that section of the show was was great. But now, but it's my turn now, and I I thought I did a pretty good job. Of not interrupting, I did uh, chuckle and laugh because <laughs> I couldn't help that. But you guys did a great job on those questions. But but you know, both of you, that I'm the world's most avid movie musical fan, so it's no surprise that I'll be asking uh, Phil about musicals. And uh, here's a little number to set the stage, if I can find it and press the button. <laughs> Yesterday I heard a lover's song. Goodbye, call me a boy. Seven times he got aboard his train, and seven times he hurried back to kiss in love again and tell her that she should say goodbye. That she should say don't cry. That you should train that takes me away from you. No words can tell us that it makes me give me to the end. Do it over again. What for the face? I'll never fail. You don't get a letter that you'll know I'm in jail. Don't cry, pretty, don't cry. Better buy, pussy, better buy. That was the great Tony Babino with his terrific Al Jolson impression. As you know, Phil, that song was the first one ever heard on film, which brings me to this question. What's your pick for the greatest bad music movie musical of all time? 
Well, I, it's funny because when I was writing this book, I had memories of a lot of films I saw when I was a kid uh, back in the 70s. And one of them is a film I saw 40 years ago around this time at the long gone UA Valentine Theater in the Bronx, New York. It was the musical version of Lost Horizon. And it was a, comp- even at, when I saw it, I was nine years old and I realized there's something wrong with this. It was it was such a complete uh, misshapen, uh, out of tune, out of step mess. <laughs> and I don't know if either of you have ever seen the film. This is with uh, Peter Finch, Michael York, George Kennedy, Liv Ullman, and Sally Kellerman. And you may realize that none of them are particularly famous for their singing. So, <laughs> no. So, and what's the name of the film again? It's Lost Horizon. It was the musical version of Lost Horizon. There had been Lost a, Horizon. Oh yeah. yes, it wasn't the one with Ronald Coleman. No, that that's a great movie. Uh, the that one, was great. That was great. yes. It was uh, the musical version uh, is uh, is something very very different. That was, I, and I can still remember very clearly uh, sitting in the theater as a kid watching it. And those uh, that weird memory comes back to me every now and then. That's up there. Uh, another film which was made the year after that, I think, might be a close second, and that would be the screen version of Mame starring Lucille Ball. And that one also, I have a fondness for it because a a few years ago I was home from work and I was laying on my couch. I had a very bad cold and I turned on the TV and MAME was on. And I was watching this for about 10 minutes and I said to myself, I have to get better and go back to work. I I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll go in sniffling and coughing and sneezing, but I I cannot lay on my couch watching this stuff. And so... Those two uh, those two films are pretty pretty bad. A quasi musical uh, because it has a music soundtrack though the, nobody actually breaks into song and dance is a movie called All This in World War Two, which came out in 1976 and it was probably the most brilliantly reckless idea ever imagined. Uh, the folks at 20th Century Fox took footage from World War Two newsreels and they married it to music by the Beatles, but these were cover versions of the Beatles tunes performed by the likes of uh, the Bee Gees, Tina Turner, uh, Elton John. And it's a terrible idea, but it's it's such a fascinating idea because the music doesn't match the footage. Uh, These are two different generations. Everything is wrong, and yet you you can't stop watching it because when you see uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, with a soundtrack to I Am the Walrus, it's like... Who thought of this? And what was the connection between this? Or if you see the aerial uh, battles over the European continent with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, that's not what the song is about. And it's it's both oh insulting goodness. and uh, invigorating at the same time. There's, there's really no movie quite like it. And it was such a huge flop that the uh, the studio withdrew it very quickly. And for many years there were rumors that the... Uh, the film was out of uh, not only out of circulation, but was destroyed. That they they were so embarrassed that they melted all the prints, which turned out not to be the case. But uh, I think those would probably be the great bad musicals. Well, you you I just loved what you your um, your mother said about I think it was was Lost Horizon. Lost Horizon, yes, that's right. What, t- tell tell the listeners what she said. Her, yes, her um, review of it. Yeah, since I remember it's like I had said to her, what did you think of the film after it was over? And she said, I feel like dancing out of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great line. That was a great – and I was uh, I was surprised uh, at 
at, at Beyond the Sea being <laughs> one of the, well, one know, of the I know you like bad Beyond musicals the sea. because yeah. I really like that. And at Long Last Love, I have to tell you that I sat in on a conversation session with uh, Peter Bogdanovich, the director, at the first Telluride uh, festival that I attended. And I, I, I had to laugh because he, he told everybody that uh, he felt so arrogant after he made the last picture show and he was getting so many accolades that he just felt he could do anything. And so he wanted to make a musical. And when Gene Kelly heard about that, Gene Kelly gave him a call and, and said, you know, if you need any help with that, I'll be happy to help. And uh, Bogdanovich said, oh, no, I, I can handle it. <laughs> And then, and he admitted there, he says, and of course, the movie was a big flop. But I love musicals so much, I I actually enjoyed At Long Last Love. And you mentioned In Old Chicago, yes. which, believe it or not, that is the first uh, musical that I ever saw. And I just thought it was the most wonderful thing that was ever on screen. And, of course, that, this was back in the late 1930s with... Alice Faye, who just oh, I mean her singing voice and she is the best. Tyrone Power so handsome, and so I was I was kind of, I felt kind of bad that it got on a list of the greatest bad movies, but yeah, well uh, I, I guess have the, to, I have to point out that the list is strictly my opinion, and anybody coming to the book should should not mistake this as being an encyclopedia. This is basically a one critic's view of what he considers to be the greatest bad films. I know there are several films in there that I've received comments already saying, why am I putting this in here? How could you do such a thing? But, uh, hey, it's it's my view, and I, I'm open to any discussion. I know there are people like you that enjoyed Beyond the Sea. Uh, At Long Last Love, I think, just came out on Blu-ray, and it's gotten some uh, very good reviews, too. But at the same time, there are a lot of films that are not in the book uh, that many people consider to be among the greatest bad films, which I like and a number of people like as well uh most notably heaven's gate when that came Me out too. 19, yes i'm when with that you on that uh, the film of course was savage to the point that it destroyed united artists but today uh there are a lot of critics who are taking a second or third look at the film and they're saying there's nothing wrong with this film in fact when i first saw the movie in i saw it on uh, vhs video in 1985 and I couldn't get over why uh, it got such horrible reviews because I didn't think the film was bad at all. I actually liked it a lot. And I've seen it several times since then, and I'm still of the opinion that uh, the critics seem to go out of their way just to destroy a film. I'm, is, I'm with you on that 100%. And we should mention that the jazz singer that you have on your list is not the um, Al Jolson jazz no, no, singer. That's, it's that's the, the Neil Diamond version, yes. <laughs> right, the Neil Diamond version, which uh, he was, uh, uh, I guess he, he did very well with the soundtrack, but got trashed by, by critics uh, for the uh, for his performance in, in that film, although I did, I did enjoy that. But, uh, well, I don't want to spend all the time on, on musicals, but I, I am glad that we had a chance to talk about, uh, about some of them, and I would have to agree with you about, uh, definitely about MAME, because I think that does belong <laughs> on the list. But let's turn to comedies and historical epics. I uh, really enjoyed reading uh, about the, the movies that you listed in those two categories. Which one would you like to start with? And uh, please, please, please talk about The Conqueror. Oh, well, okay. For historical <laughs> epics, we'll talk about The Conqueror. And that, of course, is the infamous 
RKO film about the uh, the life of Genghis Khan, played by John Wayne, <laughs> uh, wearing yellow face makeup. And uh, in that film, he captures a beautiful Tartar princess, played by Susan Hayward, with her beautiful red hair and pale skin. Yeah. So uh, the film, is, it was, of course, is such a ridiculous mess, but it, uh, it has a very tragic story behind it, since the, uh, the location footage was shot... Uh, in Utah, where the atomic bomb tests were, and uh, a very, very high percentage of cast and crew involved in the film, including Wayne and Hayward and director Dick Powell and Agnes Moorhead, uh, developed cancer, and it's widely oh. assumed that it was because of the radiation from the uh, the soil, not only from the location shooting, but they also brought the soil back from Utah to the RKO studio to uh, to build the sets there. And uh, it's uh, the film itself is, is is a complete riot, uh, and utterly nonsensical. But when you realize the uh, the death toll uh, connected to it, it's it's really not a very funny story. Not at all, not at all. But it was a it was was really a great bad uh, movie. And well, that would would have been my my pick. But uh, do you have one in that category that tops that? I think well, nothing really tops that for the idea of, of John Wayne as Genghis Khan. I mean, that's right. just uh, when the Duke comes out speaking like uh, with his John Wayne drawl and the makeup, which is doesn't make him look the least bit Mongolian. Of course, having uh, that beautiful Irish American Susan Hayward as a Tartar, may, and she even said later that she was uh, laughing out loud uh, during the production because she couldn't get over uh, that nobody pointed out that uh, she was ethnically. Uh, incorrect for the part, but I guess back in 1956, uh, nobody thought twice uh, whether or not Tartars had red hair and pale skin. Yeah, they didn't care because it was Susan Hayward, and I did love her on in most, well, practically all of her other films, even named our daughter after Susan Hayward, but now what about your top comedy? Uh, the top greatest bad comedy? Well, it's fun, you know, a great bad comedy is sort of hard to uh, describe because you go to a comedy expecting to laugh, and if you're sitting there not laughing, obviously the comedy failed. But if you're sitting there wondering why it didn't uh, work, then there, there might be uh, some redemption to it. For me, it would be a film, somewhat, somewhat of an obscure film called Atal K. It's also known as Utopia, and this was the last movie that Laurel and Hardy made. Oh. And they made the film actually in France. Uh, they went to France in April 1950, and it's a political satire uh, about the arms race and the uh, the nuclear threat of the era. And the film doesn't work at any level. Uh, both Laurel and Hardy were very, very ill during the production. Actually, the production shut down for several months because Stan Laurel was hospitalized. And as a result, they both look terrible in the film, and it's difficult to laugh at these uh, aged and firm men uh, falling on their backsides. But you also have Laurel and Hardy in a French political satire about nuclear war. And you just stop and think about it. Laurel and Hardy, French nuclear satire. These two things don't go together. And, no. no, matter, how, and no matter how hard they try in the film, it doesn't work. But yet you're, you're fascinated that, that this attempt was even made. And well, the fact the film was even finished with both uh, both stars surviving it, so in that, that film, I always found uh, completely fascinating. There was actually a book out a few years ago about the production of the film, uh, which was interesting because 
the film, there's no definitive version of the movie. There was a version released in the U.S., one in Great Britain, one in France, uh, and one in Italy. So there are four different versions of this uh, film that are floating out there. Well, I'm going to have to put that one on my list. And, and what is the name of that one again? Well, you'd probably find it in the United States under the title Utopia. Uh, the Utopia. Original, uh, yeah, Utopia. The original title was called Atoll K, so it would be... Uh, you could probably find it under either title. I'm going to to check check on that, and it's time now, I think, for a brief word from our sponsor. You're listening to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker. She's the real deal in what's happening on film. And if you're not real careful, you might hear the confessions of a movie addict so get your popcorn and stay right there in your seat for Movie Attic Headquarters. And now, back to our feature. Thanks to Steve Mendoza for that fun promo. Uh, Steve has a very wonderful show on Blog Talk Radio where he combines cooking and comedy. So, dear listeners, please uh, check the archives for the Steve Mendoza show on Blog Talk Radio. You won't be sorry. Now, I think that A.J. has some other questions that he'd like to ask you, uh, Phil. A.J., you're on again. All right. Going down the list of the genres here uh, in the thrill, in the thriller category, uh, is there one that just completely outranks the others in terms of just great badness for you? Oh, yes. That would be the Orson Welles film, Mr. Arcaden, also known as Confidential Report. And This film is sort of a quasi-remake of Citizen Kane, but it was done on a shoestring budget, and it was done at a time when Wells was at his self-indulgent worst. Uh, He was also having uh, some very serious weight problems, so in the course of the film, you can't help but notice that he's uh, filming himself from the chest up, uh, looking mostly directing, looking, I should say, uh, directly into the camera, wearing the worst makeup imaginable, speaking with a Boris Badenov Russian accent, and uh, he packed the film with a bunch of uh, well-known stars who turned in the hammiest cameos imaginable. They were Michael Redgrave, Katina Paxanow, uh, Akim Tamarov, Misha Oyer are in the film, Patricia Medina. It's all full of tilted angles and weird shadows and uh, frenetic editing, but it stinks. Uh, it's not Citizen Kane. It's, uh, it, it's sort of a, a half-assed remake of it. And the funny thing is that the leading lady in the film is uh, Paola Mori, who was Wells' third wife. She was an Italian countess and a sometime actress. Uh, she was a very beautiful woman. She sort of looked like a young Gina Lola Brigida, but uh, oh. apparently uh, she had a very distinctive Italian accent, and Wells' character is supposed to be a Russian, and the film takes place in Spain. So Wells decided to dub the uh, the character's voice with... Uh, the services of Billy Whitelaw, who's a well-known British theater actress. But her voice does not look like it's coming out of uh, Paula Mori's mouth. Paula Mori's a very sultry Italian, <laughs> and Billy oh, Whitelaw is a very posh, proper British diction, and so that just adds to the confusion. Yeah, that one I actually have seen, or at least one of the versions, because, you know, surprisingly of all, like that was released by the Criterion Collection, a number of years ago, like all three versions of the movie are uh, on it, and I can't remember which one I saw. I I remember I didn't really care for it all that much. Obviously, I didn't 
really hate it or find it as fascinatingly bad as you did, because I just kind of watched it and said, well, that wasn't all that great. And then I went and saw something else right after that. Go back and take a second look at it, the film, and if if you see it from within the perspective of Wells' overall canon, it's it's the one film that doesn't really fit at all. It, it seems like something that was uh, done as, as a lark, and, and he, it's such a wonderfully hammy performance by Wells as this mysterious uh, Russian billionaire. With, with the, the, if you should go online and just see what uh, he looks like in the movie, I don't know who did the makeup for it, but it's uh, it's something that... The words can't even describe it. I, I'm almost speechless trying to, uh, to 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 get this point across. I, I know I did at one point want to go back and watch the other uh, versions of the movie to see how they compare, but I think I'll have to just start all over again since it's been like years upon years. But uh, moving down the list here, uh, the biopic category. In this one, there is a lot of opportunity for badness because a lot of biopics are the same. They have, have like the same formula, and a lot of them kind of whitewash the original story in order to make it more palatable or just completely miss the point of uh, capturing the life of uh, who they're about. So for the biopic category, which do you pick as, like, the greatest bad one? Well, uh, several of the ones that were mentioned already, of course. Uh, the Conqueror, with, uh, which is not the life of Genghis Khan, uh, in old Chicago is certainly not about the uh, the personalities involved in the, the Great Fire uh, in Chicago even though they have Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over the bucket, which we which we know to not have happened. Uh, those two sort of come to mind. It's interesting because very few biopics are truly uh, accurate. Even the good ones tend to uh, fluff and fudge the facts for various reasons. It's, it's a bit of a shame because some people only know about historic figures from watching uh, dramatic films, never mind that these films are full of uh, invented scenes or outlandish uh, situations that had no basis in reality. So, so, of course, you can't say you can't make biopics, but uh, I'm really hard-pressed to think of any biopic which, is, which covers anybody's life from start to finish uh, with 100% accuracy. But at the same time, too, there are also documentaries that get their facts wrong, and we have several of them in the book, too. So uh, the, nonfiction, okay. yeah, the nonfiction format isn't exactly uh, guilt-free. Yeah, I know uh, seeing uh, Man of a Thousand Faces a couple years ago, that that just got like a whole lot of details wrong. But even, but even put that aside, it was a very melodramatic kind of yeah. hammy movie to sit through. Yeah, I mean, two two of the uh, films that come to mind in the book, of course, the Babe Ruth story, which is infamous for reinventing Babe Ruth's life, and the Buster Keaton story, uh, which makes a total mockery of Keaton's life. And as luck would have it, Keaton uh, actually was in the audience during the film's premiere, and he was able to keep that great stone face while this travesty was unreeling on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of had the bad. same reaction. I kind of had the same reaction this a uh, couple months ago when I watched uh, The Girl, the made-for-TV HBO movie about, you know, Tippi Hedren, which just kind of cast uh, Alfred Hitchcock in the most unfavorable light imaginable, and that probably was closer to the truth than what the Hitchcock movie with Anthony Hopkins was, but it's still made for, like, a really depressing, unenjoyable movie. I don't l- care for uh, biopic movies in, in general, and um, I think the, that you did a, a great job explaining uh, why uh, the the Joan Rivers uh, biopic was 
Oh yes, that was well, a it wasn't a biopic. That's more of a more of a documentary, but but uh, that was that does belong on a, on the list. Yes, um, Joan Rivers, uh, a piece of work. And I saw it in the theater, and I was I didn't know anything about the film when I went to see it, and I thought, oh, this will be fun because I I've been a Joan Rivers fan for many years, and it's one of the most depressing films I've ever seen, and it's, and it's the story of a comedian, and it's a, it's and it's a documentary, it's not a narrative. And it's about 90 minutes of this woman complaining and, and, and moaning and whining and bitching about mm-hmm. her problems. And, and quite frankly, she's had a, a five-decade career. She's been on stage, screen, television. She still draws mm-hmm. major audiences in, in clubs and venues around the country. I and know, I and the, she's... Yeah. I, I can't... Of I, I, yeah. That attitude, yeah, it kind of really is is totally depressing. I cannot believe that we only have a little over four minutes left. This time has gone by so fast. You both have been such fun to talk with. I I just have enjoyed this so much and in, and really learned learned a lot. And the main thing now that I I want to ask is where can listeners get a copy of the greatest bad movies of all time? And then we'll just go ahead and wrap up the show. Okay, well, they can get it on Amazon or any of the uh, e-commerce sites. My publisher is Bear Manor Media, so you can go to their website as well. And it, uh, take a look in your local bookstore if there is still one available in your neighborhood, and you might find it on the shelf. Well, dear listeners, please, please, please order your copy of The Greatest Bad Movies of All Time. You won't be sorry. You will learn a lot. You will enjoy the way Phil explains why he's picked these movies. And there, you'll find a lot of movies on the list that you will want to see because if you're like me, um, you don't like to leave any movie that's, uh, that's named the greatest off your, off your list. Well, our time is up, and I want to thank Phil Hall for another terrific interview and A.J. Hawkery for doing such an excellent job of co-hosting. But this is Betty Jo Tucker giving a big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support and to Nikki Starr for her help. I'm sorry we've had problems with uh, technical problems with the chat. I do want to thank our chatters as well as our other listeners. We hope everyone enjoyed the show and that you'll come back next time for our Hollywood or Bust show featuring author Susan Mark, who will talk about her entertaining book of the same name. Be sure to listen in. It should be another fun show. That's all for now, folks. And here to help us get ready or in the mood for next week's show, let's go out with, of course, Hooray for Hollywood!